This week on the show, we have OpenZFS and DTrace updates in NetBSD, also network security stack audit in the NetBSD kernel, which trickled down to the other BSDs. We cover performance of MySQL on OpenZFS. There are OpenSMTP results from the P2K18 hackathon, as well as legacy Windows backup to FreeNAS, how to do that and how important the ZFS block size is in certain situations, as well as NetBSD as a router on a stick in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 249, Router on a Stick recorded for the 6th of June 2018, a.k.a. BSDCAN 2018 week. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Yes, we were pre-recording this episode, as you might have suspected, because by the time you hear this or watch this, uh, we're at BSDCAN and cannot do this live. So we're doing the pre-recording, but that doesn't stop us from giving you a packed show. With headlines this week, starting uh, with NetBSD infos about ZFS and DTrace updates landing. Yes. Uh, so uh, we talked about it a little bit a couple of months ago when the first uh, patches went out for review. Um, but these are the actual commits. So in uh, the head or current version of NetBSD, uh, they've integrated the CDDL updates, which includes uh, DTrace and ZFS, bringing them up to, uh, so basically what they did is change their upstream from being the OpenSolaris code to being the FreeBSD port of it. So it goes from OpenSolaris to FreeBSD, then to NetBSD, uh, because a lot of the compatibility shims end up having to be the same. And so it was much easier for the NetBSD people to port from what works on FreeBSD than to start fresh from what uh, is in Illumos. Um, this is based on uh, FreeBSD revision 315983, just just the random starting point they chose to do the work on. Um, that revision is from March of 2017, so 14 or so months ago. Uh, so that is a little bit behind. Um, but you know they were catching up through the last 10 years of changes in DTrace and ZFS. <laughs> so That's a lot. <laughs> I I can understand why it would take them 12 months to get that working. <laughs> <laughs> that's wow so while there's more work to do there is i'm sure that catching up to 14 months of changes takes a lot less time than catching up to 10 years of changes yes definitely and um but it's good to see and maybe there's uh already the possibility to import pools from different systems uh yeah so uh with this working they would have you know ZFS v5000 and most of the feature flags at least. Uh, so yeah, most pools would probably import uh, on NetBSD as of now. Cool. Uh, they say that there have been two other changes. Um, they now support dtrace uh, function boundary tracing probes uh, in kernel modules. So if you load a module, it uh, does the right thing. Um, and then they added MMAP support for ZFS. Ah, very good. Yeah, I can see there's still a lot of work uh, being done, but definitely a big step forward uh, for NetBSD in the ZFS space. And who knows, maybe one day they will 
pull directly from upstream without uh, jumping through uh, the FreeBSD shims. And maybe they find some bugs on NetBSD on different architectures where ZFS runs suddenly on the toaster, uh, I don't know, um, which will be then reported back to the upstream. So there's a, a give and take for both. Indeed. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a lot of file changes in this one. Um, you, if you want to find well, yes, the actual importing, in the, basically reimporting all of ZFS and DTrace. <laughs> so you probably don't want to look at the list of individual files. Yeah. <laughs> but it'll be interesting to see uh, how they go about catching up and how uh, they're able to stay caught up. Yeah, uh, it's not just drop. Um, something over the wall uh, occasionally it's also the maintenance and uh, you know the feedback that you get once you have people trying this out on NetBSD that needs also uh, continuous work but yeah definitely check out uh, ZFS and DTrace updates on ZFS on NetBSD and yeah try it out more NetBSD news we have this week in the next item because there's a NetBSD network stack security audit uh, been done and uh, this is also over at NetBSD, their blogs, uh, or their blog, this, this one. And um, as part of a funded project, uh, there is um, they, uh, Maxime Villar, I hope that's the proper name, uh, is conducting a security audit of NetBSD's network stack. And the work will end soon. And he would like to briefly uh, yeah, present some results and show what's been done and what the... Uh, uh, result of that is so the uh, uh, yeah over the last five months the hundreds of patches were committed to the source tree as a result of this work so there's already uh, some uh, updates been done dozens of bugs were fixed among which a good number of actual remotely triggerable vulnerabilities Ooh, that's 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 significant for a network stack mm -hmm. because remotely triggerable in the network stack is kind of <laughs> remote gun to shut down certain systems but uh, fixing strengthening and simplifying is of course uh, important and the changes were made to strengthen the networking subsystems and improve code quality reinforce the mbuff api and many k asserts to enforce assumptions uh, simplify packet handling and verify compliance with, with rfcs so this was done in several layers of netbsd's kernel from device drivers to level 4 handlers and uh, a lot of cleanup took place too. For example, they managed to remove more than 1,000 lines of code in IPsec, while at the same time improving the robustness and performance. And the kind of cleanup results in the networking code that is much cleaner or easier to understand and maintain. And with the fixes for critical bugs quickly uh, being propagated to the stable branches, NetBSD 6 and 7, and NetBSD 8 beta, uh, those branches also get those um, patches. And along the way, several changes were made uh, discreetly. Uh, they discreetly propagated. They write when they were considering or considered as a good mitigation against possible attack vectors. So they list the fixes in other operating systems. Uh, so they also propagated uh, to uh, OpenBSD and FreeBSD. Uh, as they write, in the course of investigating several bugs discovered in NetBSD, they happen to look at the network stacks of the other BSDs or other operating systems out there uh, to see whether they had already fixed the issues and if so, how. And needless to say, uh, some bugs were found. So FreeBSD had 
uh, two security advisories uh, as a result of that, and OpenBSD had two, four, six, and uh, NetBSD itself had five of those, so there's uh, some patches going around, and uh, the results being shared, that's good. That's the kind of uh, collaboration that we still see in the BSDs, even though they have diverged in different directions. There's still some code sharing going on. Of course, uh, they're focusing on NetBSD, so it's no surprise the number of bugs found there is higher than the other operating systems. Yeah, that's uh, understandable, but at least they gave an idea where the problems were and just, hey, look, did you fix that? And if not, then look at that. So, um, it needs to be noted, though, that FreeBSD hasn't yet published advisories for several bugs uh, that they reported to them, which they nonetheless fixed pretty quickly. That's just work going on. It's uh, under, uh, I think they were working on that, so it's just a matter of time. Uh, they're also uh, posting some examples there. So there is the <laughs> first one. There's also a nice picture here. IPv6 buffer overflow. And uh, apparently in January, they discovered that in NetBSD's IPv6 stack, there's a subtle buffer overflow, which turned out to affect the other BSDs as well. And the overflow allowed an attacker to write one byte of packet control data into packet underscore storage plus off, where off could be approximately control two. This allowed at least a pretty bad remote denial of service. By sending specifically crafted packets in the loop, an attacker could override several areas of memory with wrong values, which would eventually lead to undefined behavior and a crash. Uh, so there's the little depiction here, how this uh, bug could be exploited. Um, but I guess this is fixed by now, so that's uh, been dealt with. Next up, they list the IPsec infinite loop. Uh, so when yeah, receiving this it, this one I, we had talked about before when the advisory came out, where yeah. basically the offset could be zero, and you would keep adding zero until you get to the end, which would be never. Yeah, so that that got fixed and uh, properly addressed. And the next is that the IP proto typo was also uh, discovered. Now you're saying, well, how how security relevant could a typo be? But it turns out it is. Uh, by looking yeah, at the IPv6. So in the IPv6 multicast code, uh, he stumbled across a, a mistake where uh, at one point it would return IP proto none uh, instead of IP proto done. So one character off, uh, and it happened to be uh, a character off where it would actually um, still compile because it wasn't a bogus variable or bogus enum, but uh, just happened to be a slightly different one. So returning none instead of done was entirely wrong. It caused the kernel to keep iterating on the IPv6 packet chain uh, while the packet storage had already been freed. So you're trying to read through the memory after you've freed it. And that's bad. Then there was a PF signedness bug. Um, it found in NetBSD's implementation of the PF firewall from OpenBSD, um, and it doesn't affect any of the other BSDs. In the initial PF code, uh, this macro was defined as a number, but NetBSD changed to using a size of to automatically size it. Uh, the problem being that size of returns an unsigned result, whereas the, the number was a signed number. And because it was used for uh, calculating the difference of something, it could cause all kinds of badness. Yeah. Then there was an interesting <laughs> um, integer overflow in NPF, NetBSD's new native firewall. Um, in this one, you could basically cause 
uh, the firewall to inspect the wrong part of the packet. So you can see in the diagram, you see the destination address header, and it would normally point to this TCP header over here. But you could trick it into reading this other uh, part of the packet. So you could put, you know, send a packet and then put a fake header somewhere else in the packet and trick the firewall into reading that. And so suddenly the packet matches a completely different rule and is allowed through because it comes from a trusted host or whatever. Uh, and it basically would allow you to trick the firewall into doing something different with the packet than what the packet should actually do. And then there was an IPv6, or sorry, an IPsec fragmentation attack, uh, where, as it turns out, um, when reassembling fragments in v4 or v6, the kernel is not removing the packet header flag uh, from the secondary mbuffs in the chain. Right, so only the first one is supposed to have this. You know, the flag is supposed to indicate that this mbuff is the start of a chain, but all of the mbuffs had it because they weren't being removed when they were assembling the packet back into one big packet. And then later in the code, uh, it would assume that the if you saw this header, it was the beginning of the packet or whatever, and get the wrong length and then trigger a remotely triggerable denial, uh, denial service attack that could crash the system. So uh, then they say, what now? They say, uh, not all of the protocols and layers of the network stack have been verified uh, because of the time constraints and also because of unexpected events. Uh, you know, with the recent uh, x86 CPU bugs like Spectre and Meltdown, uh, he got pulled off of this network audit project and uh, working on those mitigations instead. So a to-do list will be left at the end of the project uh, and someone else uh, can pick those up and continue to work on them. Uh, or perhaps he'll come back uh, for another round of, of work on this in the future. Uh, so this security audit uh, of NetBSD's network stack was sponsored by the NetBSD Foundation and serves all users of BSD-derived operating systems. You know, uh, OpenBSD and FreeBSD both uh, got fixes out of this work. Uh, the NetBSD Foundation is a nonprofit organization and welcomes any donations that might help continue funding projects of this kind. Yep, it's certainly good to uh, get those fixes in the other projects and donations make uh, these kind of things possible. This week's episode of BSD Now is uh, brought to you by our sponsor, DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean and check out what kind of virtual machine uh, products they have in their little cloud called the DigitalOcean Cloud. And they have the machines called Droplets, and they have them in different sizes from small but still powerful enough to host most uh, uh, open source uh, projects or uh, at least the software they're producing up to a lot of CPU and memory in case you want to go a little bit bigger. And they have a coupon code from our, uh, you know, <laughs> special uh, section here. Uh, the, it's called FreeBSD Now, which gives you a $10 credit, and that gives you something to start with. But Alan still has a bigger code, I think. Is that still yes. valid? Uh, so if you already have an account with DigitalOcean, but you haven't used the coupon code before, go to digitalocean.com and either sign up for an account or log into your account and enter the coupon code FreeBSD now and it adds $10 in credit to your account, which you can do whatever you want with. Uh, the other one uh, is if you go to 
do as in digitalocean.co as in company uh, slash BSD now, it'll take you to a special secret, super secret page. And when you sign up for a new account there, they'll give you $100 in credit uh, for the first 60 days to do whatever you would like to do. Yes, uh, because then you can uh, start a droplet that has already uh, some software on it, uh, or like 10 of those, then build a little cluster, like a MongoDB cluster or um, something that you couldn't do on your laptop at home or in your workstation. And that's exactly what you can uh, use the cloud for. Test it on the cloud, and if you like it, then, well, <laughs> ask your boss to buy you the <laughs> the, hor the horsepower for uh, the actual systems. Or run this in the cloud indefinitely. Dave, that's no problem as long as you pay the bills. That's pretty much uh, the same service that you can expect from a local deployment. Uh, you can also... Uh, use the one-click app, so definitely check those out because then you can run a very simple um, node that runs a Ruby on Rails stack or your WordPress blog or some Django. Whatever you need, uh, it's probably already been packaged for you and you can also check out the community section on DigitalOcean's website which has community-provided how-tos and tutorials. Uh, and they give the tutorial writers money so that the tutorials have um, not only the quality, but also the actuality and that the authors get also something back for their troubles of writing those. You can also find in their web GUI a very nice way of looking at what kind of machines are running, uh, what kind of CPU and RAM they're currently using, and how much bandwidth they've already used up from your monthly uh, available bandwidth. So that's uh, quite comprehensive. And if you are more into the programming and if you uh, have a lot of droplets to manage, like uh, creating and destroying them, you can check out the API, which lets you controllably uh, automate your uh, droplet deployment. So you can use Ruby, Curl, uh, Go, or their own DigitalOcean control uh, panel. Yep. So on to the next story. Yep. That's also interesting uh, for the people who can't get enough of ZFS, because this one is MySQL on ZFS performance uh, comparison, or at least a um, little benchmarking. That's over at the Percona website. Yep. Yes. Uh, so this one, they're uh, basically following up to the post we talked about um, the other week when we um, showed the videos from the ZFS user conference. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the people that was doing this uh, performance testing over at Percona uh, presented it at the Open ZFS Dev Summit and kind of got some feedback. Oh, excellent. So one of their coworkers uh, presented a new set of benchmarks. So they say, I use Sysbench to create a, to a table with 10 million rows and then use the export import table space feature to copy it 329 times, ending up with 330 tables for a total size of about 850 gigabytes for the database. Uh, the data set uh, generated by Sysbench is not very compressible. Uh, but they used LZ4 compression in, in ZFS anyway. Uh, for the other ZFS settings, they used uh, what they found from the earlier post, which includes setting the arc size to only one gigabyte, which is probably not a great plan. Hmm. But they're following the standard uh, MySQL advice of 
letting the MySQL inodb buffer cache deal with most of the um, caching and so on. Uh, it is possibly unfair doing that compared to when benchmarking versus XFS, which is going to use the OS buffer cache without that strict size limit necessarily. And yep. as we explained at the ZFS uh, user summit, ZFS is doing a lot more work than XFS. So in a straight up test, you would expect ZFS to be slower. It's doing extra work to guarantee the safety of your data that XFS is not doing. Right, and that doesn't normally, not necessarily or directly uh, translate into performance. Right, is what the extra work ZFS has to do is always going to make it slower. Mm. But it's but secure this way. You get your data back. Like, things like the ARC can make it smarter than other file mm -hmm. systems. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, he, says he then used a plain configuration for the first benchmark. Uh, here are the results. Uh, this is with the inodb buffer pool set to 2.5 gigabytes. And you can see that with XFS, they got about 3,000. Uh, yeah, and then levels off. Uh, request per second. And with ZFS, about half that at a little over 1,500. Mm -hmm. So in both cases, it was completely IO bound. The disk is doing exactly the allowed 3,000 IOPS. They were using an Amazon instance with provisioned IOPS. The above graph appears to be a clear demonstration that XFS is much faster than ZFS, right? Uh, but that's, uh, is that really the case? The way the dataset has been created is extremely favorable to XFS because there's absolutely no file fragmentation. Once you have all the files opened, each read IO is just a single FSeq call to get to the offset in the file and read it from the disk. And ZFS doesn't need to access any intermediate inode. The above result is about as fair as saying that MyAzam is faster than inodb based only on table scan performance uh, for unfragmented tables in the default configuration. So then it goes on to talk a little bit about how ZFS metadata works with the B trees. And you see at the root, and then each of those nodes, uh, the indirect nodes, points to leaf nodes, and those leaf nodes actually contain the data in your database. The extra IOPS performed by ZFS are needed to access these internal blocks in the B tree of those files. These internal blocks are labeled as metadata. Essentially, in the above benchmark, the ARC uh, is too small to contain all those internal blocks, just the metadata about the data in your database. Uh, if we can uh, continue the comparison with inodb, it'd be like running with a buffer pool too small to contain all of your non-leaf pages. Uh, the test data set uh, that we used was about 600 megabytes of non-leaf pages, about 0.1% of the total size, which was well cached by the three gigabyte buffer pool. If only, uh, so only one inodb page, a leaf page, needed to be read for each select statement. Uh, to correctly set the arc uh, size to cache the metadata, they uh, go over some of the math and a bit of experimentation to help find you know, what the right amount is. And they found that because they're using small pages and so on, they might need as much as six gigabytes of arc, uh, which isn't really that much, but their VM mm. that they're running this only has 15, so maybe that's a lot. But then again, uh, if they're... MySQL buffer cache is going to be three gigs. What's the rest of that RAM going to do? Might as well use it. Uh, sure, for certain. Uh, so they actually delve into using the ZDB tool to actually look at the internal structure of the data and understand what setup has is doing internally. I recommend you go check that out if you're interested. 
but then they looked at, well, what happens if we can change the inodb page size, uh, which you could start doing in MySQL 5.7, uh, so that we could increase the ZFS uh, record size and have a less metadata per data. Um, so with that, suddenly going up to 64K pages instead of 16K pages drops the um, metadata overhead level from 0.8% to 0.2%. Huh. And that makes the difference? Yeah. And then they also played with using an L2 arc device. Although, in most cases, in this case particularly, they probably would have been better off with just adding an extra 8 gigs of RAM and letting the arc do it in the arc. But huh. you know, uh, going to a bigger sized Amazon instance costs quite a bit more versus adding an extra... Uh, device to the IVM. Yep. So they showed the, some of the tuning they did, setting the ARC metadata limit to 8 gigs and playing with it a bit. And then running, they noticed that while well, XFS is still doing its 3,000 IOPS, or 3,000 queries per second, ZFS is now able to do 5,000 queries per second. Hmm. So it went from 50% uh, as fast to 166% as fast. Yeah, that's something people want to have. In, uh, and in then you speed. start considering you know, using LZ4 compression. The larger record size means that you get even higher compression. You're already compressing the metadata. Um, the other one that they haven't dealt with yet is there's a, a setting in ZFS called redundant metadata. It's a property mm -hmm. on a data set. And it's specifically designed for databases to say, especially when you're using the smaller record size, like 16K, only keep two copies of all the metadata instead of three. And that will be that many, you know, one quarter less IOPS used for metadata on every write. Um, it wouldn't affect this benchmark because they were only uh, benchmarking the read speeds, not the write speeds. Um, mm -hmm. But it can make a difference in both the space overhead and the IOPS overhead of using databases on ZFS. Yep. What would be interesting to see... Uh XFS on a ZFS volume in that benchmark. That would just end up caching <laughs> things twice, and it's not not great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wish I had time. I'd love to set up this same thing, recreate the results, and then apply my tuning understanding and see how much different that gets. Mm -hmm. um, so, for, for example, MongoDB recommends to use XFS instead of the other Linux file systems out there, and this might be something people should look at and make reconsider using ZFS because with a little bit of tuning, you can get a bit more reading yes. done. Uh, in this case, again, it falls back to my other advice. Don't just do random things you found in a blog post to your pool. Um, that yeah, can, this is a specific... So don't just do what this guy did. And also don't do the meta thing he did, which is read a previous blog post from his company's website and make the same mistakes again. Um, but in particular, adding an L2 arc when you only have 15 gigs of RAM is probably hurting you because it takes RAM to say, hey, this data is actually on the L2 arc. Uh, if your L2 arc is too big, you're actually spending most of your RAM pointing to the device that's not as fast as your RAM. And just caching more stuff in RAM could have been better. Uh, but because he had limited the size of the arc so small, uh, it's much less than his working set of metadata. 
It wasn't uh, the normal trade-off. Yeah, it's a, a synthetic benchmark for one certain kind of uh, read. And, right, and yeah. you know, if your database is read-only and you're using ZFS, what you really do is, you know, turn the record size way up, uh, get all the compression, and just fit the entire database in RAM. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's how you do it. Um, but if you have a whole different, uh, like a write uh, going on, or more writes than reads, then this is not a, a general uh, suggestion. So tune it to the workload that you have. Um, the important point of this post was that, contrary to the previous post, it is possible for ZFS to be faster. Sure, uh, yeah. It just really depends on the tuning and your workload. Yeah, it's not the end uh, uh, result. You can do more. All right. Very nice. Uh, we also have an OpenSMTPD new config, uh, which resulted from the OpenBSD P2K18 hackathon, uh, which took place took place in Nantes. And uh, it starts with a <laughs> too long didn't read at the beginning. Um the, uh, they were organizing the hackathon but managed to make progress on OpenSMTPD, which is OpenSMTPD, the mail server from OpenBSD, um, or from the OpenBSD project. As mentioned, at EuroBSDCon, the one-liner per rule config format was a design error. A new configuration grammar is almost ready and the underlying structures are simplified. Refactor removes roughly 750 lines uh, of code and solves many issues that were side effects of the design error. So new features are going to be unlocked thanks to this. So that was just uh, the summary at the beginning. And now they go a little bit more into the actual anatomy of the design error, where this came from and what kind of uh, uh, uh you know, what kind of things came out of that. OpenSMTPD started 10 years ago. Oh, wow, has it been already 10 years? Oh, cool. Uh, out of dissatisfaction with other solutions, mainly because uh, they considered them way too complex uh, to get things wrong from time to time. And the initial configuration format was very different, uh, inspired by uh, Peers. Uh, Peer is the, the username, the nickname. Um, host state D, which eventually became RelayD and designed uh, the configuration format with blocks enclosed by brackets. And when they first showed OpenSMTPD to Pure at OpenBSD, uh, he convinced them that PF-like one-line rules would be awesome, and it was awesome indeed. It helped them maintain their goal of simple configuration files, helped fight feature creeping, it helped also gain popularity and became a relevant mail transport agent, and it helped us get uh, where we are now 10 years later. Okay, let's see, design is important, and if you start on the wrong design foot, then it bites you later. Uh, that being said, they believe that actual thing was a design error, uh, which could have been predicted until they hit a wall to understand why this was an error. One-line rules are semantically wrong. They're SMTP wrong. They are wrong. Oh, there's a lot of wrongs in here. Yeah, okay. So, that being said, uh, to get to the point... Uh, one-line rules are making the entire daemon more complex, preventing more features from being implemented, making others more complex than they should be, and they no longer serve our goal. So to get to the point, we should move, the two, move to the two-line rules. Right. Okay. So just to give you an idea, the previous way one of these rules would look would be, except from any for-domain-pool-p.org, 
delivered to inbox. And it was actually one rule trying to do multiple different things. First, the decision on whether we should accept or reject, the matching, uh, you know, from any to domain pool P, and the action delivered to inbox. Uh, to ensure that we meet the requirements of the transaction, the matching must uh, be performed during the SMTP transaction before we make a decision on the recipient. Uh, given that the rules are atomic, it doesn't have some identifier and that the action is part of part of the rule there. The two only uh, the two only ways French people. Uh, <laughs> to make sure we uh, remember the action was to actually add it to the envelope of the message while we're processing it. And this gets tricky and both solutions are not okay. Hmm. Uh, so they looked at a couple different solutions and then decided to separate the action and the match uh, rules. Okay. So the first solution, uh, which we've been using for over a decade, was to save the action into the envelope and kind of carve it in stone. This worked fine, however, it comes with the downside that errors fixed in the configuration files can't be caught up uh, by envelopes, that admin, uh, delivery actions must be validated way ahead of time during the transaction, which is much trickier, um, and that the and the delivery message takes place in the SMTPD user rather than the recipient user, uh, and that envelope structure that are passed all over OpenSMTPD carry delivery time information, and you know it's a layering violation basically. The code becomes more complex in general, less safe in a bunch of places, and some areas are nightmarish to deal with because they have to deal with completely unrelated code that really shouldn't be in this part of the code path. So the second solution uh, can't be done. An envelope may uh, be the result of nested rules. For example, an external client hitting an alias, hitting a user with a .forward file, uh, resolving to some other user. Uh, an envelope on disk may no longer match any rule, or it may match a completely different rule. If we could ensure that it matched the same rule, evaluating the rule set may spawn new envelopes, which would violate the transaction. Trying to imagine how we could work around this leads to more and more RFC violations, incoherent state, <laughs> duplicate emails being sent, and so on. There's no simple way to deal with this with atomic rules. The matching and the action must be two separate units that are evaluated at two different times. Failure to do so will necessarily imply that we're either using our first solution uh, with all of its downsides, uh, or that we are currently in a world of pain trying to figure out why everything is burning around you. <laughs> so, uh, switching something to kind of like the newer uh, PF syntax, they have match rules. So you can match on TLS or on authenticated user or from a certain socket or with a certain hello field or whatever. You create your match rules and then you uh, create actions and tell them what to do. So for example, you say match from any for local and then apply my action. Then separately you have an action called my action and it says, you know, deliver to mailder. Okay. This way, um, you process those two separate rules at different times, and you don't end up in this problem where you have to kind of remember some of this stuff for later. 
So, time for the news roundup this week. Uh, we have something a little bit strange at first, but it makes sense once you uh, realize where this is going. Uh, backing up a legacy Windows machine to a free NAS with rsync. Ah, that's where the reference to BSD comes from. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the post goes on. I have some old Windows servers that are 10 or more years old, and I've been using rsync to back them up to my free next box, and this is worked very well for me, so he walks us through it. First of all, uh, I do have my Windows servers back up in a virtualized format. However, uh, those are only one-time snapshots and uh, you know only run once in a while and really want something more frequent. There are classic um, ASP IIS web servers that I can easily put in a new VM. However, many of these legacy servers generate gigabytes of data a day in their repositories. Uh, running a VM convergence daily is really not ideal. So the solution was to use some sort of rsync solution uh, just to do data deltas. I've tried uh, some applications that don't work so well with Samba shares, and these old servers have slow I.O. Copying files to external SATA or USB drives was not ideal either. We moved on from Windows to Linux, and we do not have any uh, Windows file servers for capacity to provide network backups. Hence, I decided to use Delta Copy with FreeNAS. So here's just a little write-up on how uh, to do it. In this case, they have four Windows 2000 servers backed up daily with this method. <laughs> wow, Windows 2000. Jeepers. <laughs> it's, it's been a while, yeah. Ooh. Yep. Uh, so... Uh, first, they went and downloaded Delta Copy and installed it. It's an open source and it's free. It's basically a wrapper around Sigwin's version of rsync. Uh, when you install it, it will ask you to install the server services, which allow you to run it, uh, an rsync server on Windows. Uh, we're not going to do that in this case. So. Instead, we will just run the Delta Copy client application. Uh, before we do that, we need to configure our uh, free NAS to run an rsync server. Uh, using the rsync native protocol instead of SSH is definitely going to help with the speed and lower the CPU usage in this case. So, uh. in your free NAS, go under Services and select rsync. And then under rsync modules, create a new one. Uh, then you can fill out a little bit of information about the rsync module, basically giving it a name and telling it what data set to store the data in. So, uh, ideally, I imagine you create one of these for each of the servers you're backing up, because uh, each one would be a different data set. Uh, So you fill out that form, and you're pretty much good to go. So this process is much easier than trying to uh, configure the rsyncd.conf by hand. Uh, You know, there's the value of the free NAS GUI. Uh, Now, on the Windows client, start the Delta Copy client and create a new profile. You'll need to enter the IP of the rsync server, which will be your free NAS, and specify the module name that you just created, which will basically be the virtual directory, or the share name if you're from Samba. Uh, When you pull the select menu, the list of rsync modules you created earlier should auto-populate once you've given it the IP address of the the rsync server. Uh, You can set authentication on the server. You can restrict by IP and do other things to lock it down. Next, you add uh, the folders of files you want to copy to the FreeNAS. Once the paths are set up and you run a sync by right-clicking the profile name, here uh, I made a test sync of the home folder in the virtualized Windows box. As you can see, I mounted the rsync volume on my Mac, and I can actually see the progress. Okay. Oh, those old Windows screenshots. Gee. 
R-Sync works uh, beautifully, and Delta Copy gives you a nice GUI on top of it. Mm -hmm. uh, once you get everything working, the next thing to do is set it to be scheduled. Uh, so just do this with the task scheduler in Windows, which is basically the Windows version of CronTab, uh, and set it up to run automatically. And there you have it. You now uh -huh. have files uh, with uh, R-Sync to save or to deal with uh, you know, modified files uh, and pushing it to your free NAS where you can create snapshots and replicate it offsite or just you know store it in uh, a way where it's actually protected from bit rot. Yeah, on ZFS for added security and protection. Yeah. Which brings us exactly to our next sponsor, because if you hear FreeNAS, then yes, of course, you think IX Systems. And mm -hmm. yes, that's the folks that are doing FreeNAS and doing it well. They also sell you the hardware for it in case you have a backup need in a uh, more bigger or uh, smaller uh, environment. Uh, they can give you a FreeNAS Mini, Mini, Mini XL, up to the big server rack just for backup purposes. But not only that, they can also build you a server that's exactly fitted for your needs in the open source space. Let's say you want to run an open source application of certain kind. You're not sure, does this need more memory? Does this need more hardware? Does it need more CPUs? Uh, call up IX Systems. They will build you such a system for your specific purpose. Yes, even if that purpose is just backing up all the Windows machines at your office. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's totally you know, valid. FreeNAS, like half of the point of FreeNAS is backing up those Windows machines because you don't trust them. You know, yeah, to do the it's job. how FreeBSD gets a foothold in all of these regular everyday offices where everybody uses Windows is because, sure, you use Windows and it works great. That's fine. But you need your data to be more durable than that. So... Get it backed up to that FreeNAS. Whether you're accessing it directly of, uh, off the FreeNAS using Samba or NFS or um, AppleFS if you're running Macs or whatever, uh, mm -hmm. but get the backups and get the important files on the FreeNAS, get the snapshots, protect yourself against ransomware and accidentally deleted files and corrupted hard drives, all those things. And it's super easy. Like we showed you in the previous article, it's a web GUI where most of the things are so easy to configure. You wonder how uh, you've never done this before. It's just so exactly. easy because it's all menu driven and, and the systems know, put a lot of folks yeah, on that. Backups need to be easy or they won't get done. And if they don't get done, you'll regret it. Yeah, if it's too complicated, then something might get missed or overwritten accidentally. And so that's why IX Systems uh, put a focus on making that easy for end users and also the non-IT people that they can also set this up. Yep. So and if you run out of disk space... <laughs> uh, head over to ixsystems.com slash BSD now and get in touch with them. I just did. Uh, turns out, out of space again. So ah. it's like, hey, <laughs> IX, I need uh, another 20... 12 terabyte disks. Is it Monday again? <laughs> and uh, I'm going to need to start making decisions about adding more shelves. Uh, so I want to start looking at my options there. What's the best option for me to fit the, the most hard drives in the available rack space? Uh, it's interesting 
at some point in the past, it was like, well, the rack space is the least of my concerns. I got lots of rack space. Uh, well, that rack space is all full of hard drives now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it's extensive, yeah. <laughs> but they still have ideas how you could uh, solve that problem mm -hmm. and discuss solutions with you, not just to uh, sell you something, but also figuring out, ah, this is the, the need in five, six, seven, eight months or years probably so exactly so on to our next article how to write atf tests for netbsd so atf or the automated testing framework it's a way to write basically integration tests and and uh you know ci cd type stuff so tell us a bit about this mm -hmm. so uh this is over um at the r3xnation.wordpress.com uh they have recently started contributing to the amazing NetBSD Foundation. Uh, they were thinking of trying out a new operating system for a long time. Uh, switching to the NetBSD operating system has been a fun change. Uh, their first contribution to the NetBSD Foundation was adding regression tests for the address sanitizer, the ASAN, in the automated testing framework, ATF, which NetBSD has. Uh, they managed to complete it with the help of uh, their the really amazing mentor, Camille, and this post is going to be about the ATF framework that NetBSD has and how you can add multiple tests with ease. And since the ATF test uh, framework has been ported from NetBSD to FreeBSD, uh, those tests could also be reused in FreeBSD and other systems that use ATF. But that's uh, me as a um, uh, side point. Uh, the intro that, to that goes, uh, in ATF, uh, the tests will basically be talking about test programs, which are a suite of test cases for a specific application or program. And the ATF suite of commands uh, are a variety of commands that the ATF suite offers, uh, which include ATF-check, which is a versatile command that is a vital part of the checking process. There's a man page for that, of course, so you can read up all on uh, all these uh, specifics there. There's ATF-run, which uh, is a command used to run an actual test case, and ATF-fail to report an actual failure of a test case. If something goes wrong, you want to know about this. Uh, the ATF report is used to pretty print the ATF-run output, and ATF set is used to test ATF uh, test conditions, so uh, true or false or equals one or something like that. It depends on the test you're writing. Uh, so they will be taking a better look at the syntax and usage later. Uh, the basics is basically uh, ATF testing framework comes pre-installed with a default NetBSD installation, so it's already there on the system uh, and used to write tests for various applications and commands in NetBSD. Uh, one can write the test programs in either the C language or in a shell script, if you're more versed in that. Uh, and in that post, they will be dealing with the bash part. Well, careful here, shell scripts unequal shell bash scripts. So, okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, there are more links in the, uh, because it's a lot, rather long article, but well worth the read if you're interested in starting to write tests, because that could lead to a more uh, involved uh, career, if you want to call it that, um, with uh, kernel programming, or at least userland programming, because you wrote tests for that. And they tell you how tests are written, what kind of structure they have. So this is uh, pretty comprehensive to get started with. Yep, yeah, that kind of walks through the basics of uh, 
creating a test from scratch, basically, uh, which is something I've been looking for because I like to add some ATF tests for some stuff and didn't have an understanding of how to get started at first. Yeah, because if you can test it and you are sure that there will be no regression sneaking in or stuff that uh, you thought would work uh, suddenly blow up in your face and you don't know where this came from, if you have a test, then uh, your code is much more robust. Well, in particular, uh, ATF and QA have been, uh, are part of FreeBSD as well uh, and use for our test framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was uh, ported over, and uh, there's, I think, also a bit of sharing going on with, with tests uh, because yep. of the heritage that both BSDs uh, share. Excellent. Uh, our next topic is uh, one for Alan again, the importance of ZFS block size. Yes, so... Uh, again, I preface uh, this article with, you know, warning, don't just do stuff because somebody's blog says it, it was a good idea. Uh, but anyway, it goes on. It says, one of the important tunables in ZFS is the record size for normal file systems or the vol block size for zvols. Uh, and the defaults are 128K for a file system or 8K for a zvol. As I understand it, this is the unit of work in ZFS. If you modify one byte of a large file, uh, with the default 128k record size, it causes that whole 128k to be read in, the one byte to be modified, and then that whole 128k to be written out. Uh, as a result, the official recommendation is to use a block size which aligns with the underlying workload. Uh, so for example, if you're using a database which uses 16 kilobyte pages, then you should use a 16 kilobyte block size instead of S. If you have a VM that's uh, containing you know, a regular file system, you might consider a 4K uh, block size. Although most file systems, while the sectors are 4K, have a larger cluster size, uh, and you might get away with doing that as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they looked at a file they have, which is a 16 gigabyte disk image, but it actually only contains 8.5 gigs of data. Basically, it's a sparse file. Uh, it was created as 16 gigabytes, but not all of those bytes have ever actually been written to, and so they just contain nothing. Yeah. Uh, all so if they copy this over to ZFS, we see it takes the same amount of space there, that 8.42 gigabytes. However, when they created a ZVOL and copied the file over using either DD or QMU image, uh, they found that suddenly it was taking 14.6 gigabytes, and they were slightly confused. Uh, like, why is my 8.42 gigabyte file suddenly taking 14 gigs of space, uh, which is almost the entire 16 gigabyte uh, size without all the sparseness? <laughs> and they thought maybe the problem was the QMU tool, but when they used DD, they got the same problem. Then they tried it again, but set the block size of their Zvault to 128K. And suddenly, the file went back to the size they expected, 8.42 gigs. So what's going on here? Uh, well, part of it has to do with the metadata overhead. For each block you have on your ZVOL, ZFS has to keep all those indirect blocks, like in that tree we saw in the, the ZFS uh, database article earlier. Well, those blocks take space. Uh, and when you use 8K instead of 128K, you need a lot more of those blocks. And it can actually impact speed. So in their little test here, uh, they read from the file um, 
using 4K blocks and then again using the 128K blocks. And they found that it takes uh, 5 minutes and 52 seconds to read all the 4K blocks uh, and only 3 minutes and 20 seconds to read it with the larger blocks. Uh, and again, that's true, and the larger block is better, uh, except, remember back to the beginning, if you change any portion of the 128K block, you have to read the whole thing, modify it, and write the whole thing. Um, if you're making tiny changes, that's a waste, but it can get really bad when you're doing something like a database. If you have the 128K record size, and you're actually modifying 8 or 16K at a time, uh, you can do end up doing a lot more work, especially if you take the 128K, read it in, modify the first 16K, write out all 128K, then read it back in, which ZFS, you probably won't have to read it back in, it'll be in the arc, but then yeah. you're going to modify the second 16K and write that out, and then modify the third 16K and then write that out. And because it's copy on write, you're keeping a separate allocation for each of those, and suddenly you're doing a lot more work than you needed to do. And, you know, if you only have so much write IOPS or bandwidth uh, for your database to write to the disk and you're writing, you know, many times more than you need to, you're going to end up wasting a lot of time, right? If you're, if you're doing eight hmm. times the work you need to do, it's going to be eight times slower than not doing the excess work. Yeah. And with the data sizes that we have nowadays, waiting eight times longer than necessary, well... Another thing they didn't talk about was what their zpool layout was. Uh, depending on the record size and the sector size of your disk and the RAID Z level you're using, padding can also come in. Um, yeah, If true. you're using, say, RAID Z2 and the default 8 kilobyte uh, block size and your disks are 4K sectors, then uh, on RAID Z2, every allocation must be a multiple of three sectors. Uh, right, because you'll have one data sector and two parity sectors uh, as the minimum. If you ever end up with some allocation that's not divisible by three, you could end up with a hole somewhere on the disk where you have two sectors of free space, but you can't write something that small because you need to save two sectors of parity for it. And so you would end up with free space that you could never use. So to prevent that, it always rounds it up to... Uh, n plus 1, where n is the, the RAID Z level. Uh, so, because you if you have 8K of data, so you're gonna, that's two sectors, and then the parity for it is two sectors, you're going to write four sectors. But you have to round it up to a, a multiple of three, so then that's six sectors. So you ended up writing two blank sectors of, of just padding. Uh, and now you're using up more space on the disk and just not filling it with any data. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if you used maybe a larger sector size, uh, the padding level might be different, right? If you write it, if you had 16K record size, that's four sectors. And then you add two sectors of parity. And uh, then you round that up to be divisible by three, which requires having zero more sectors. And now you're not wasting any space. Um, and so that can also impact uh, the numbers on some of this stuff. Yep, uh, so storage planning and uh, knowing what kind of workload this pool is going to serve uh, will go a long way into the performance space yes. to get you. Uh, and then the other thing is, the other advantage of the larger sector size, or uh, larger block size in ZFS is more compression. 
right? Once you have compression oh, yeah. on, um, the bigger your record size, the more data you get to compress at once. So you can find more redundancies and more duplicates to compress. Um, and that can end up making it take less space, which can be very confusing. Mm. <laughs> but uh, the benefits are clearly visible. Yeah. Uh, so it really comes down to you have to see what your actual workload ends up being like. Uh, but I imagine if they had uh, even stuck with the 4K sector size and then enabled compression, they might have had some advantage. Although with 4K sectors, you're actually not going to get any compression advantage because you can't compress something down to less than one sector. Uh, so for Zvols, you probably almost never want to use 4K. Um, mm. it, it might have made sense when you had 512-byte sector disks, but with 4K sector disks, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, uh, they're more and more common. Yeah, so you might consider 16K as maybe a, a good sweet spot there. Mm. All right. Um Ah, next one is a good tie into our show. Uh, we have a article here using a Raspberry Pi 2 as a router on a stick starring NetBSD. So first of all, we're being mentioned in this article, um, not replying quickly enough. So first of all, sorry, uh, we're busy as you as you can imagine. Um, we'll cover this now so that we uh, try to catch up on this. Um, so uh, what's this all about? Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the author of the blog post, um, Kev, uh, set about upgrading uh, his feeble networking skills by playing around with a Cisco 2970 switch. Uh, he set up a couple of VLANs and found the urge to set up a router to route between them. The 2970 isn't a modern layer 3 switch, so uh, what am I to do? Uh, why not make up uh, or use the Raspberry Pi 2 that he never used and put it to some good use as a router on a stick? Uh, so he could install a Linux-based OS, uh, as I'm uh, quite familiar with it, but there's where's the fun in that? Uh, in his home lab, he used uh, SmartOS, which, uh, by the way, is a shit-hot hypervisor, but as far as I know, there aren't any Ilomos distributions for the Raspberry Pi. On the desktop, I use Solos OS, which is by far the slickest Linux-based operating system that I've had the pleasure to use, but Solos focused is purely desktop. It's looking like BSD then. So uh, he believes uh, FreeBSD is renowned for its top-notch networking stack, and so he wrote to the BSD Now show that you might know um, <laughs> on Jupyter Broadcasting for some help, but it seems that the FreeBSD chaps from the show are off to an uh, Jolly some BSD conferences. Well, if only that. Um, for another, but love the show, by the way. Thank you. So we now uh, try to catch up on this. So let's uh, go with the actual uh, how-to. Uh, download the image and install NetBSD on micro SD cards. Uh, so that's described here as a quick uh, how-to. Then you boot that up uh, and make changes to your SSHD config because... You know, you want to kind of access your uh, little Raspberry Pi later on. And uh, they, had, they were trying to create the VLAN interface, which uh, apparently didn't work, or at least the, uh, are not enabled, the VLANs in the kernel. Uh, so uh, not using RPI to build, too slow. Yeah, so spin up a NetBSD VM in VirtualBox to get the freshest sources so that you have uh, the VLAN support and other stuff. And um, then they go through the usual um, build prep, like uh, 
building the uh, sources for the Raspberry Pi, which can take a bit of time, uh, but this is uh, NetBSD, of course, where you can uh, cross-compile for other architectures. So in this case, uh, ARM v7. And uh, so the building instructions are all there if you want to follow this along. And upon a successful build, you should see something like, well, build finished. Uh, don't look at the time it took, but <laughs> as long as you have a working kernel, that's fine. Uh, Woohoo! They have a kernel, and that you can now use to uh, build your system for the Raspberry Pi 2. And then you can, uh, he's testing for the actual VLAN ability in the kernel. That uh, was the actual goal of the whole uh, exercise. And yeah, looking good. They can now create the ifconfigs uh, with the VLANs and there are no errors anymore. And then they can start creating the, the routing, you know, for packet forwarding and things like that. So that's been all detailed in this article. And yeah, should get you running with your little router on a stick uh, on NetBSD with the Raspberry Pi 2 or even the Raspberry Pi 3 you could also do this. Time for the Beastie Bits this week, uh, starting off with BSD Jobs website, which uh, is, I guess, relatively new, but important because a lot of people are looking for jobs in the BSD space or with FreeBSD. So uh, this one should hopefully solve that, at least. If you have a, a job posting, then send it to them and they will put it on the website and on Twitter so that everyone can see it. Uh, so the first one they have there is uh, Rake Floiter of OpenBSD says, Hi, I'm moving to Switzerland uh, and I'm looking for operating system developers to join my team at Architrust, a company in Zurich. Uh, sorry, no remote work, uh, but they'll be doing OpenBSD, C, and virtualization with some Rust. Oh. Uh, there's also a position for a system administrator at Netcetera in Macedonia and a software developer system infrastructure person at WhatsApp. Uh, so WhatsApp uh, is looking to hire people who can write clean, awesome, bug-free Erlang, C, and C++, and work with multi-node clusters, uh, and have an understanding of Unix internals, especially FreeBSD, knowledge of TCP IP, and experience with network programming, experience building and scaling distributed, highly available systems, uh, and are able to work in a team, and they prefer two years of experience with Erlang, C, or Python. Mm -hmm. Okay, so yeah, follow this site uh, or visit it regularly in case uh, you're looking for a job. There might be something new there. Uh, good luck to Reich also for his move and to Arcatrust uh, for the for finding new people. Uh, next, we have a repeat, but uh, still important thing that the University of Aberdeen's Internet Transport Research Group is still hiring, and you uh, should look into their positions that they have. Yep. So, uh, this so is... if you want to work on Internet Transport Research, which means you know TCP IP and networking, um, they have a research fellow and a research assistant position. So whether you're you know relatively new to this or old hand, either way, uh, they have. Uh, jobs at the university in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, something more academic, but nevertheless, interesting work. Yeah, they're doing uh, good work. Could... Uh, if you've seen, uh, we did an interview with Tom Jones, uh, who's one of the people you'd be working with. Uh, I guess it'd be two years ago at uh, Fosdem. Um, uh -huh. And he, we've also talked about some of the other stuff he's been working on in the meantime. Uh, so 
if you want to keep working on making the internet actually work better, uh, you should check that out. Yep. Uh, the next item we have is a VR demo on OpenBSD via OpenHMD with, so now there's a couple of acronyms here, OSVR HDK2. This is a YouTube video. OpenBSD and OpenHMD are not already acronym enough. <laughs> yep, but uh, the video is basically the, the VR demo from like the, the, the stream or from the uh, camera directly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, we're checking out if you're into virtual reality. Hmm. Ah, yes. If you can't get enough of Ed, then this next item uh, is something to your liking. Uh, Patch runs Ed, and Ed can run anything, which uh, mentions FreeBSD and OpenBSD in the article. Uh, Yes. Uh, I know for a while uh, there was a version of Ed called Red, which was a restricted Ed that had fewer capabilities so that you couldn't quite uh, convince the patches to do evil things. Um, so in this example, they have a patch that says you should run touch on slash TMP slash owned uh, and then run LS on it. And then when you try to apply the patch, uh, it uh, puts some random stuff. And you're like, what? What's going on here? <laughs> yep, that's the power of Ed, which is uh, something you probably didn't learn in your Unix class, but uh, it can do some uh, interesting things. Yeah, so they say... Uh, it looks like FreeBSD fixed uh, this sort of thing back in 2015, although GNU patch, uh, as shown above, clearly has not. And OpenBSD also patched theirs back in 2015. It looks like they had it first, uh, which I suppose makes sense. Also, I'm hearing that it can't exec other programs anymore, which is uh, very awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, and next item we have says that Alacrity OpenGL-powered terminal emulator now supports OpenBSD. So uh, go over the website. It's on GitHub. And check out and what it, it looks like. It also supports uh, FreeBSD, Linux, and macOS. Mm-hmm. And, oh, Windows support is planned before the 1.0 release also. So this is a cross-platform uh, thing then. Very nice. GPU accelerated. Excellent. Wow. Well, should take a look at that. Then we have a little bit of a late update to the uh, map stack stuff. So yeah, have, this uh, is... In OpenBSD, they've committed the uh, map stack option for MMAP, which uh, synchronous faults, page faults, and syscalls confirm the stack register points uh, at all map stack memory. Otherwise, the sig fault is delivered. The signal stack, uh, or signal T stack, uh, and P thread uh, set stack are modified to observe the map stack flag, uh, and can only set and clear that uh, by a map, uh, which zeroes all the contents of the region. There is no mprotect equivalent operation, so there's no uh, map stack adding. You can only declare it ahead of time. This opportunistic software emulation. Uh, of a stack protection bit makes stack pivot operations during ROP chains fragile, kind of like removing a tool from the toolbox. Hmm. Okay. And, and you know, uh, as we're all thinking about conferences right now, as we're over live at uh, 
the first day of BSD can. Uh, remember, your time is running out to submit your paper uh, or tutorial for Euro BSD con and uh, <gasps> come join us in Romania. Yes, submit something that gets you there, giving a talk or a tutorial. If you're more uh, into the teaching part, uh, yeah, submit something. Why not? What could, you know, yeah. the um, worst thing is say they don't accept it, but yeah. The, this part <laughs> is not very hard. Uh, send them a, a short and concise test description. So about 100 words explaining what you'd want to talk about. And then uh, give a short CV about yourself so they know who you are and uh, an estimate of your travel expenses so they know what it'll cost uh, to bring you over to Romania. Yeah, and once the call for paper is done and they announce the talks, we will cover it in the show, of course. You have until early on June 17th to submit, so you only have about two weeks left to pick a topic and write up your 100 words and send it in. Yeah, mark this red in your calendar to not forget it. Submit in time. Uh, otherwise, the deadline runs out without you submitting something. And, and then again, you are ashamed for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, and you don't have to be the big kernel change maker. You can do a talk about how you introduced BSD in your workplace or some other environment. Some interesting things that you're doing with BSDs. It's not just kernel hacking and user mm -hmm. space stuff. Uh, it's a little project BSD. I've been. Uh, thinking about and talking with uh, some other people about was trying to come up with kind of a list of talks we would like to see uh, mm -hmm. so that people that didn't exactly know what to talk about could look through it and be like, hey, I actually know a lot about that topic. I could, I, I didn't think anybody would be interested. It's like, actually, that's exactly the one we were looking for. Fill that spot. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good to at least give an idea what what people are interested in. Very nice. So that's for the Beastie Bits section, but before we head into the feedback and questions section, we should mention the sponsor for that one, Tarsnap, of course, which we will also see at BSD Can because they're sponsoring the Dev Summit, uh, the t-shirts, and uh, Tarsnap is the online backup for the truly paranoid. They give you the security to sleep at night knowing that no one else but you can decrypt the files that you stored into the cloud. Yep, it only takes $5 to get started, so you have no excuses. And, as we mentioned earlier, backups have to be easy or you're not going to do them. So Tarsnap makes it super easy. One little command, say, hey, create this Tarsnap archive, put these files in it. It automatically deals with segmenting your data and deduplicating it, compressing it, encrypting it, and sending it off. You barely have to do anything. You just got to tell it, these are the files I want to back up, and these are the files I don't want to back up. And it does it. And yeah, it's quick all, and easy. Uh, Page you go. So you put the money in and you use it up until it's gone and then you put more money in. It means you never get a surprise bill because you can never spend more money than you've already paid. Yes, and as long as you keep the key secure, no one else can decrypt it somewhere in the cloud or grab the files because they're all encrypted and it's just gibberish to them. They don't understand what it is. Check out Tarsnap and uh, make backups. Okay, uh, feedback and questions time. Uh, Neutron Damon has written us about a tutorial request. So that one goes. I have been tasked with installing a ticketing system for my work. 
I looked up in the port street because this would be a good opportunity to put BSD in my work site. I like how you think. Um, <laughs> that is uh, purely Windows at this point and saw that OTRS, the open ticket request system, was available. I then searched tutorials and it seems like even the ones on FreeBSD.org are A, derived from people that installed them in Linux, which means they have to do soft links and other tricks to get them to work on BSD, and B, outdated. So can you guys do a tutorial on how to install OTRS on FreeBSD? And this might be too much to ask, but if we can do it on Nginx instead of Apache, thank you guys uh, for your help. Uh, that would be appreciated. Ah, see, at work, we use a different uh, ticket system out of the ports tree. We use Request Tracker, which I think is in the port trees as like RT42, because it's a version 4.2. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but I've installed OTRS before, um, and I definitely didn't have to sim link anything around or anything crazy like that. Um, yeah, so the easiest thing is package install. So that gets you the, the software. Right. But the uh, config is different. Configure the uh, Nginx and probably like FCGI wrap or something uh, mm -hmm. to deal with the Perl for you. And it should be pretty straightforward. Um, I'm also interested where you found a tutorial on freebsd.org that was derived from Linux. Maybe yeah. forums is maybe mean. Maybe it, it could forums. be. Because that might be handbook, a spot. Yeah. I don't think the handbook has anything about OTRS. No, <laughs> I haven't seen one. Uh, uh, so, so I've I've run OTRS on FreeBSD many times in the past. I've not done it in the last five years because I've been using RT instead. Yeah, I think that that's nothing specific to OTRS. That's Linux specific, which makes it not run on FreeBSD or any other BSDs. Well, so it's in the port tree, so it definitely runs. It's yeah. pure Perl, so it's... I guess it's the, the config part. That, yeah. Uh, um, the, I'd have to look. But generally, yeah. like I think on the OTRS website, they have the instructions for configuring the web server for it, and I'm sure they'll have Nginx in there. Mm. Or our listeners have just recently done some, something like that, and they can send us uh, a link to their instructions or a blog post that will detail the steps and we'll cover yes, it in the future. Or, uh, if you happen to figure it out, uh, Neutron Damon, uh, write the tutorial for us. We would love that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And submit that to <laughs> EuroBSDCon while you're there. <laughs> See? All right. Um, next up is Kurt uh, with a question about transferability and bidirectionality of ZFS snapshots and send and receive. Ah, I see. Uh, this one starts, uh, hi, Alan and Benedict. Thank you for the show each week. Sure, no problem. I have a question about a ZFS situation I'm facing, which is the replacement of my main disk in my computer. I've been using snapshots and ZFS send to back up the current main disk so that currently the main disk and the backup disk have a dozen or more monthly snapshots that correspond to each other. So the question is, and perhaps it is silly to ask because the designers of ZFS seem to have anticipated nearly every need, uh, if I transfer snapshots from the original uh, to, uh, from my main disk to the new source disk, can those snapshots be used as the basis for updating the backup with ZFS sent going forward? Uh, to put that concretely, if the original source disk has snapshot April 2018 and the backup disk has April 2018, can I transfer April 2018 to the new disk and then do an incremental send based on April 2018 from the new disk to the backup in May 2018? Yes. Uh, so while you attach arbitrary names to your snapshots inside ZFS, they have a globally unique ID. Um, and so yes, you can totally do an incremental from 
the new disk to your backup uh, based on the common snapshot. It's the only way you can, uh, but yes. Um, so you know, no matter how many uh, times a snapshot has been replicated to different pools and different machines or whatever, it's still actually the same physical snapshot and you can use it for incremental. Uh, and that's one of the great things about ZFS. Mm -hmm. And with a bookmarks feature, you can even uh, delete parts of your sending snapshots right. uh, so, uh, to save space. That one works. Uh, so you have the April 2018 snapshot, which is what the system looked like right then. But it also means that you're keeping any of the data for files older than that snapshot that was been overwritten since. Whereas if you only have a bookmark, it's just basically the transaction number uh, from when that snapshot was created. Uh, but it doesn't make you keep all the files, any data that's been overwritten since that snapshot. Mm. Uh, because you know, when you're doing the incremental, you only need the new, the data has been changed, not the data that's been deleted. The delta, right. snapshot, you want to keep the data that's been deleted so that you can undelete it. Yeah. Uh, goes uh, on. My other thought about this situation was perhaps I should send snapshots from the backup to the new disk, and then once everything is caught up and the same snapshots exist in both places, then turn the direction around. Start using the new disk and then send new snapshots uh, generated on the new disk in the other direction back to the backup. Yep. I hope that it's clear. Uh, I do yep. something very similar when I travel. I ZFS send all of my working file data sets from my NAS to my laptop, work on them at the conference, then make another snapshot and replicate it back to my NAS, uh, and then go back to working off my NAS. Uh, it works very nice. Again, because every snapshot's the GUIDs, it doesn't care which direction they're going. Yeah. As so long as you keep the common snapshots as so you have a, a, a starting place for your incremental replication, it just works. Just don't end up in the situation where you've modified a file on both sides. But since your backup is going to be read-only, basically, it'll be completely safe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if that spark of genius strikes at the conference and you really want to implement this, and then when you're home, sync this back. And uh, yeah, yep. that's, that works. It's uh, not a one-way street. Okay, I uh, hope we answered that question. Uh, there's more details, of course, in the ZFS books, ZFS Mastery, and... Uh, you know, there's also um, ways to find there's this no out book. on the web. There's no book called ZFS Mastery. Uh, FreeBSD Mastery ZFS. Isn't that yes. the one? Okay. Yes. And <laughs> should FreeBSD I Mastery Advanced ZFS. <laughs> anyway, yeah, on to the question. Sure. Um, that one is from Peter. A question about much... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> A question about much love. No, a question and much love for BSD now. Okay. Hi, Benedict. Alan, first, I want to thank you for the many years of high-quality content. Well, for me, it's just the second year. Alan has been at it a bit yeah, longer. Yeah, we're getting pretty close to five years of this. This is getting crazy. Mm. So, <laughs> he's a computer engineer by study and spent men, uh, plenty of time hacking the Linux kernel at school and at work and discovered uh, your show uh, recently, our show, and you've given him, uh, we've given him a sort of voyeuristic fascination with the goings-on in the beastie world. Uh, come to the end of the semester, when I don't depend so heavily on my Debian-based toolchain, uh, for kernel hacking, he writes, I'm planning to give FreeBSD a whirl so I can try out all the new tricks you all show off with ZFS, jails, and virtual networking. Oh, this is just a scratching that surface there's much more uh, but I digress uh, my question is simply whether or not you're aware of a good uh, free and open source software for two-factor authentication program or failing that uh, one-time password generator 
I'd love something that could integrate with PAM, but that I can protect SSH servers with a second factor of authentication. But I'm also interested in anything that either uh, of you might be aware of. Uh, so I have used OP, O-P-I-E. It's uh, one-time passwords in everything is what it stands mm -hmm. for. It's an old thing in FreeBSD. Like I think it's based on MD5. I've, I've yeah. thought of updating it and having a, making a, a mobile version of the password generator part for it uh, so that you'd... Uh, so the way it works is when it's enabled via PAM, uh, when you go to log in with SSH, um, it will tell you the sequence number. And then either you have access to the original secret password or whatever and uh, generate the one for that sequence number, or in the case of how I was using it years ago, I had a, an index card printed out with the sequence numbers uh, and the passwords, which were made up of little like four-letter words. Uh, so it's like if the sequence number is 55, you go on your little index card, find 55, and it would tell you like the six four-letter words that were the password. And that password would never be used again. I think the sequence number went down by one every time until it eventually got to zero, and then you had to generate a new set of them or whatever. Uh, but That's it meant part that of the base system even. Yeah, yeah so this is uh, part of the base system. Uh, but I'd love for somebody to update that to use newer cryptography than it does it like it uses md5 uh and it should use like scrypt or something um and make a mobile version of the generator so that instead of having that index card i'd have the generator uh pre-set up with the right password or whatever and then on my phone i would just say oh the the challenge i've been given is 712 and it would tell me the right thing to type in to get the access going yeah uh, I know people have also used the uh, Duo uh, securities thing uh, for two-factor. Mm -hmm. uh, Google Authenticator. Also, yeah. Um, and I think we, we've covered a tutorial on how to do that before. Uh, and we've also covered the one for Google Authenticator. Yeah. And if you're looking something, if you're looking for more hardware stuff, then check out the YubiKeys so that you need the hardware part. Have you still not opened your YubiKey? Uh, I, have, I have sent two. See, the other one is, is opened. Okay. <laughs> one of two. <laughs> I get there. Uh, so, yeah, this might be another way of uh, getting the second factor uh, security added to that. Mm -hmm. And all, all of these integrate with PAM and SSH. So that works. And there are how-tos out there. You can find them. Um, the next up is another Peter uh, with a question about NetGraph state. Uh, that's quick and easy. I've been watching BSD now. Uh, he writes, uh, for a long time. Nice show. Keep going. Thank you. Uh, the question is, what is the status and the future of the NetGraph? Uh, so, NetGraph is great. It works. Uh, I don't know that anybody's doing much with it. Like, or, um, I don't know that it's changing much nowadays, but that's because it works. And yeah, sometimes there are uh, more um, developments in individual NetGraph modules, like updates or, um, you know, simple fixes. Uh, but I, th I see no big things. It works. It's, yeah, part of the system. People use it. It's not something abandoned or outdated for too long. So, I, yeah, there's nothing more to say. Maybe the... Uh, how-tos may uh, on the uh, handbook may not be uh, reflecting the latest state, um, 
but it needs well, a little I bit more. Well, they are because the NetGraph hasn't really changed. It you know it was built and it works and yeah, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, just try it out. It will yeah. it will do uh, its thing. I don't know. I've never actually used it for anything. <laughs> Mostly yeah. because I haven't had a need, not because it's not any good or anything like that. Yeah, if you're heavily in networking involved, then um, there are ways for NetGraph to be useful. Mm-hmm. Okay, that sums it up. Um, again, if you have any questions like these or want to contribute to our show with a tutorial or a nice BSD-specific uh, article or blog post that you found, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll cover it in a future episode. Again, this is the episode for BSD Can. So while Alan and I and uh, two over 200 other people that are already registered having the times of our lives, uh, you will get to watch this episode. And when we're back, we, of course, report all of the things that happened there. Probably not all of the things. Uh, the, 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 the highlights. <laughs> well, we will definitely make you sad that you didn't come. Yeah, then you should already start planning for next year. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, enjoy the See week. See you next week. And-